Hey, hey, it's the Sopranos Podcast coming to you from North Jersey, your head of audio Sunday dinner this week, episode three, The Consequences. Young girls are not accountable for their behavior. I think Toodle Oo was the action of a ditzy young girl, and I regressed into the girl thing to escape responsibility for abandoning a patient. That quote is by Dr. Melfi in this great episode, Toodle Fucking Oo, written by Frank Ranzulli and directed by Lee Tamahori. Guys, Toodle Fucking Oo, I've been waiting for this one. I can't tell you how excited I am. First of all, off the bat, before we even get to initial reactions on the episode, which is how we start this, uh, let's slate ourselves. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And I think this is maybe one of the top five episode titles in The Sopranos, just because it's... <laughs> so good. You don't see episode titles for TV usually with swears in them, so that you know that's one thing. And also, it's just great. It's catchy, it's funny, it's weird, it catches your eye, you're waiting in the episode, like, why is this episode called Toodle Fucking Who? <laughs> and we find out. But that said, here we go, let's jump into it. We got uh, a plot about... Meadow in her grandmother's house, as Tony would say over and over. We have a new character coming into play, and we have a little guilt from Dr. Melfi. Those are the three threads weaving in and out this episode. Thoughts on Toodle Fucking Oo? Well, to begin, one little nice bit is that Toodle Fucking Oo, as the title, is fun, it's intriguing, it's different. It's not out of the question or the most surprising thing that a Sopranos episode title would have the F-bomb in it. <laughs> but that the F-bomb is dropped by Dr. Melfi, <laughs> right. which she probably does a total of less times than I could count on the fingers that I have in the entire show, is a nice surprise. And it speaks directly to, I think, a lot of the themes in the episode having to do with regression, with immaturity, with responsibility, and with consequence. I don't think it's an, an accident, for example, that Meadow perhaps in this regressive format, acting out a bit in this immature way that Tony in the family dynamic has to deal with, is the same episode when we get this new character coming in, Richie April, whose immaturity, petulance, violence, similarly has terrific, unbelievable consequences, but given a different family dynamic, the mob family dynamic, Tony still has to protect that character. It all comes together really nicely. It's a dynamic hour. I also just want to throw this out before we go on. I'd love to hear from you guys on this. I don't think, certainly up to this point in the Sopranos chronology, Livia perhaps is an exception. I don't think I've ever seen a character who comes in, in this one episode, their very first appearance, and seems to disrupt the world in so total a way. Because the Meadow storyline, I'd say, is the B storyline, and C is the runner with Dr. Melfi. The storyline that takes over is Richie coming back to North Jersey, mm -hmm. and the actions that he does having these consequences that Tony has to deal with as the new boss. So it, it all added up to this really well-paced-out one hour, and it seems to me very important and telling for that character of Richie April that his simple presence... And his entrance is formatted in a way that really seems to turn everything upside down. I'm so in awe of Paul's initial impressions of the episode here that, like, there's a sudden vacuum in my head of yeah. anything good to say to follow up. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna <clears throat> jump directly off of what was said by Paul. You this two is... are like competing academics uh, sometimes in this, and I'm just like, the <laughs> oh, guy, go I'm on. I'm just like, yeah. So how about this scene, guys? You never, <laughs> you never give yourself enough credit. <laughs> Richie April, Richie April. I mean, 
I was waiting for a real villain this season. And keep in mind, of the three of us, I'm the novice when it comes to The Sopranos, right? I'm the one who's really looking at this with new eyes because I really haven't watched the show since, for the most part, that when it, when it was on, really. Mm. Uh, you guys have been through multiple watch-throughs, are so well-read about the show that you can kind of contextualize this appearance a little bit better than I can. For me, kind of going in with like a, the new viewer look, I was kind of like, all right, episode one, we got, all right, Janice is, is in here, okay, interesting, Livia is diminished, Junior is diminished. What's, what's really the threat level here? It's mostly the threat of, like, Tony being, you know, not balanced in some way, having trouble ruling in peacetime, the threat of, of Pussy maybe being involved with, uh, you know, his own return, but <clears throat> as the viewer knows, involved with the government. These are all threatening things, but they're weak things. You know, they're a little toothless. You know, we're yeah. used to Junior and Livia, you know, riding it here, you know, mm. and we're like, well, what's going to fill in that space? And then here comes this Richie April character who is a force of nature. Truly a force of nature From character, like, like a predatory animal mm. who comes into the show. And, and Paul said it so well already. He is just this force of disruption. He can see where everything is not balanced and say, well, I'm just going to knock it off the table then yeah. if things are so weak here. you know. Yep. And his distaste for how things are being run... Uh, both in Tony's family life and his personal life, yeah. both of those things. He says, you know, this is not the way that it should be. For me, and our episode title for, for this week, Richie April is the consequences. The consequences of re uh, the, conse the consequences of weak rule. The consequences of consolidating power inefficiently. The consequences of allocating power in a way that is not traditional or in a way that it, it should not be. This is the guy that makes you pay for it. That's Richie April. Amen to that. You guys so thoroughly nailed that. I'm going to talk about my reaction to this episode in a little bit of a different way. For me, adding on top of what you guys said, playing the improv game, yes and, uh, <laughs> the power of this character is so perfectly channeled by David Proval. I have to talk about the acting here He's for a so second. good. You imagine yourself an actor, whether you're an actor out there or not. You get a call from your agent. Hey, you're uh, up for this role in The Sopranos. It's a villainous character. You're going to kind of come in and be a foil to Tony Soprano. It's a cultural icon at this point. The show has made such an impact in its first season. So you go in there. It would be so easy to make this guy a hot-headed maniac. Or just off of that first scene. You read the script for that first scene. You think, oh, this guy's unhinged, out of control. But Proval has this stare has this stillness to him, mm. that centeredness he has from yoga. And you can see, as you said, <laughs> you can see the animal beneath him. He's, one line I wrote down, a key line in that first scene when he's out and he's just walking around the neighborhood seeing if he can see any old faces. Uh, and he steps into Beansy's Pizza Shop, immediately disgruntled. Not out of prison, maybe. I, you get the sense, it's possible he was picked up from prison by Adriana. That's how I think that is out of jail. I think that is how, and he yeah. goes to this place. He's looking around, and the line I took from that scene. Well, there's many great ones, by the way. This is a Frank Renzulli episode, so you have a lot of fucking. He, I mean, he was just pelting the f hilarious lines one after the other. But the line I took is, "Not as crazy as I used to be, it's still crazy enough to take an eye out." Tells you everything you need to know about this guy right there. How fucking crazy was he ten years ago when he went away? Uh, you can only imagine what kind of horrific violent act he committed to get into prison in the first place 
and he's just like soft and quiet and menacing and still and he's just he's he's just the personification of this old school attitude but in a really kind of dangerous sick way it's really great he cracks him with the coffee pot and i'll be damned if every single time in my life since i've seen this episode the the, the words veal parmesan sandwich come up <laughs> i don't think of veal parmesan sandwich fuck you just perfectly <laughs> delivered it's so fucking funny there's a quote it's great so yeah uh richie is the obvious tour de force in this episode and i also love everything else i really love melfi's journey i think it's an important uh and fun way to check back in on her and not in a way it's not like normally the melfi scenes we see are in relation to tony this is just her we're following we as the viewer are following her on her own in her own therapist right. her own journey her own bedroom so, great episode on, on very many fronts. A lot of new ground, new territory being broken in. And our most important Meadow Soprano episode since college. Correct. Yeah, big, big, very big Meadow episode. Yeah. Uh, so, a lot of stuff going on here. I'm excited to get into it. Let's uh, let's just kind of start from the top and yep, see yep. Where, where it goes. We open the episode. Tony is driving down the street. We hear the... Uh, sounds that rem- of Jaw Rule, which remind us that we're in the early 2000s. And <laughs> uh, we see Special K and Ecstasy at this party. Tony's got a cop who tipped him off. Meadow's been partying in this uh, in, in the house that was formerly Livia's. What do we think? How, how, interesting start here. First, I actually had a personal connection here because my mother would never let me bring my girls, my girlfriends, like or any girl I was seeing back to our house. She thought it was, like, disrespectful to the house for me to have sex. What the fuck was that about? I don't know. This, this just led me to having sex in weird places, right? So my, my car or whatever. But after my grandmother fell and broke her hip and went off to the nursing home, I absolutely broke into her house and would bring girls there all the way up until my mother caught me and gave me the same speech that Tony Sopranos gives to Meadow. In your grandmother's house! In your grandmother's house! Over and over and over again. So that's exactly what this reminded me of. (laughs) That's so fucking funny. (laughs) The the first image in this episode is interesting and telling. It's Tony driving through the dark. um, Coming up on this weird dead end sign. Maybe not entirely sure where he is. Ends up, of course, going to a place where perhaps we never thought we'd see him go again. His mother's house. Uh, He said in the last episode, I think, dead people don't have houses. (laughs) With respect to his mother, who he considers dead to him. It also reflects, I think, that confused look, Tony being lost in the dark. That's the image of Melfi's dream. Later on, Tony as lost. Mm. Then he ends up at the house with Meadow. It's a very interesting sequence. It gets kind of dark. The the bit with Hunter is very funny. Um, Mm. Where Meadow's friend Hunter is dancing and Tony, I think, says, Hey, Janet Jackson. (laughs) Uh, But one of the kids is getting wheeled out, having OD'd. Yeah, um, kids yeah. puking on the ground. Meadow looks uh, upset, scared, and she sort of, it's a bit infantilized, um, her making excuses, then sitting in the back with Hunter, and it made me think of college when, in spite of Tony's lies and half-truths, they did make a connection, and it seemed again like Meadow growing and coming into her womanhood more, and here she's in the back making these cracks, and it, it just felt very real to me, I guess, as, as evidenced by Jordan's real-life experience in this case, how even if you've made a connection with your parent, things can move backwards. This episode is in part about that regression into immaturity. Mm. Um, so it was a very nice setup 
for the episode as a whole, as is the great scene when they go home and AJ says, uh, I want to see the fight. I was just about to talk about that. I was that kid. Not AJ. I was much cooler. I wore corn shirts instead of Marilyn Manson when I was there. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that was a great scene, and that was so real. The little brother... My, I had a brother who was a troublemaker and always got... An older brother always, always got into some shit, and they're always trying to like keep you out because there's only a little brother's only going to make that kind of parental confrontation worse but you want to hear it you want to know what's going on you want to yeah. know what he just did it's so i am i was all there with aj i always laugh at that moment it's very funny very well acted and i have to ask i want to ask this question real quick before we get into the nitty-gritty of this plot thread um i think we can all agree that this was a i mean the richie april plot is the meat of the episode it's right, the right. quote-unquote a plot yet we start and end with the meadow party in the grandmother's house and everything that happens in between there, we start and end the episode there. Why do you think that is? Well, good question. I, I think the, the first thing to acknowledge is that Livia's house as a symbol is very important to the series, mm. and it is ultimately important to Tony. Livia's house is kind of the whole reason for the kerfuffle in season one. Mm. I use the word kerfuffle. <laughs> I really should just say it's, 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 it's the reason for the war yeah. that mm. is season one. Uh, Livia's house is a house that has interest for the women in Tony's life, for Livia, for Meadow, and for Janice. Uh, this property is important, and Tony having to go back there when he's having this really dark time about his feelings with his mother, you know, th that is important in and of itself. But let's just talk about Meadow as a character for a second. We have come to think of Meadow as the hope of the family, right? At this point in the show, at least, we don't really think very much of AJ, we don't know what life is going to be like for Tony. Ultimately, Meadow is the future. She's going to go to college. She's a straight-A student. She's, you know, in, you know, advanced choir. She's a terrific musician. She's talented. And here she is blowing the future of the family, right? She's just fucking up. Hmm. You know, I think that's offensive to Tony. You know, I think the better life that he wants for his family is encapsulated in his hopes for Meadow. And then here she is going to make him, like, a Tony-type mistake. You know, or, or an AJ-type mistake. You know, she's better than this. I don't know if we want to already jump to the bookend at the end of the episode, but actually, Tony has reason to be hopeful. She is better than he thinks. I love that. While we're talking about it, why not? We're going to follow our noses here. Uh, while we're on that last moment, I love that kind of perplexed look he has. It's, it, it's almost like he can't... The idea that she would fix the mess she made is almost like it, he can't believe it. She's imposing, I think one of the reasons that you do bookend it this way, in addition to what Jordan said in particular about Meadow's character, we talked in season one, Jordan, I think you mentioned something about Meadow not being separate from the family, but having a kind of life outside and above it where she's, there's another sequence, in the, there's another scene in this episode where we see her on the second floor landing. Yeah, right. Yep. Looking down, peering down. Which we've done a few times. It's yeah. basically Meadow's perch as far as I'm concerned. Right, yeah. And at the end, I think maybe not unlike what Melfi has to do in her own therapy session with her useless therapist, um, <laughs> because Meadow has actually expertly manipulated her parents and no real punishment has been imposed, she has to impose the responsibility on herself. Yeah. Mm. And I think that is what is impressive to us and might be that perplexing feeling that Tony has. And as you said, Jordan, why he should have hope. Yeah. Meadows, Meadows, all right. She didn't do this to get off the hook. She didn't do this for the glory. She did this because she realizes she did something yeah. wrong. And uh, 
something else to acknowledge, equally deep to that, which I think is a, a terrific observation. We're going to see a scene, you know, later in the episode, you know, uh, we haven't talked about it yet, where, you know, Tony is going to visit Beansy in the hospital. We'll go into how all that comes about in a bit. But he tells him, you know, we're, we're old school. We clean up our own messes. We do our own laundry or whatever. Mm. And Meadow has taken that lesson away as well. I've often said of Tony that he tends to learn the wrong lessons from people, certainly from Livia, from, you know, Junior. I think Meadow might be the hope for the family. She seems to learn the right lessons from people. We see her be very manipulative in this episode, but in a, a sort of a harmless way, a way that Carmela and a, Tony have opened themselves up to, but also yeah. she's making it right mm-hmm. at the end of the episode. I, I consider Meadow to be a character of the highest integrity. They don't confirm this, but I interpret it. I choose this interpretation. You guys can agree or disagree. That she, the $10 she scams from Tony and Carmela in that second to last scene we see her in the kitchen, you know, where she walks off and Carmela's like, thank you, by the way. You know, I think she you needs think she bought s- the cleaning supplies. I think she went and bought the cleaning supplies and got her ass over there. By the way, super manipulator, Meadow. She's so good. So not only does she manipulate the punishment that she receives for destroying her grandmother's house, which is the to take away her Discover card for three weeks, weeks which as, as Hunter acknowledges is like no punishment at all. Then she follows up by asking them for gas money, which obviously she could use at her leisure. $10 a week for gas money, great. It sounds like she's really not being punished here. And then she very specifically asks for $15 to buy a CD. The CD, by the way, is something that she will need for Madrigals, right? For, for a singing competition. Mm. Something she has to do for school. So, of course, she knows she's going to get this money. But also asking for $15 is a very specific amount because she knows she's going to be handed a 20 and he knows she's not going to have change. So this is masterful manipulation. This is learning the most you can from Carmela and Tony. How do I play them both against each other? How do I play them both individually? How do I get it to benefit myself? That's some mob shit right there. But she's using it for good. I hadn't thought of that breakdown. That is really good. Another thing that I love in that scene, this is uh, to Frank Renzulli's credit, and he does this a few times in this episode, short scenes, short bits of information that communicate a lot. He's becoming one of my favorite writers on the series as I really look in depth. In order to communicate what Meadow is doing and how expertly she can do this and how spoiled she is already... Instead of, like, say, docking her allowance, which was always what happened to me if I fucked up yeah. and got punished as a kid, um, this credit card that she's that she has, not on her own credit, um, is, is taken away from her for three weeks. And they establish that she owes money to Carmela for buying her a pashmina, which <laughs> is a fucking hand-woven scarf from the old days of friggin' Persia. So how how do you even punish this kid? It's uh, just and these lines just get slipped in. They're very fast and these scenes move pretty quickly. But you're rolling along and you get this information that really colors the world, um, and it helps. It makes it more dynamic. It's an interesting conundrum to see Tony and Carmela in because to quote Janice, you know, Meadows' entire biological determinism is to oh, you know uh, realize independence. But they don't know how to punish her. That's an interesting thing because. Tony is the guy you go to, he knows what to do to punish people. He's very good, and, and there's some instances that we've seen, and definitely to see, where he meets out consequences very easily, but he doesn't quite... I love that those, that scene in the bedroom where they're like, you know, we can't overplay our hand, because uh, she knows we're, we're powerless, we're fucked. Right. Uh, it, it's just... It's, this this yeah. conversation being the other reason our, our episode today is titled Consequences... They have none that they can use that they feel really applies to what Meadow did. Mm. You know, they can express to her that they 
disapprove. Which does affect her. You see how irritated and bothered Meadow is throughout this episode, right? Yeah. But yeah, they, they can't hit her, right? right? There's nothing they, they can do that will lessen her performance at school in some way. Yep. Basically, they've levied what in their mind is the maximum penalty. It's just, it's unfortunately not enough. But Meadow does go through her own atonement. She's going to clean the mess at the house herself. Mm-hmm. And it's a disgusting mess. You know? Yep. And another part of that amazing look Gandolfini gives to close out the episode, I think uh, in addition to being perplexed at the fact that she would go and do that on her own, it was something he would never do. So also, he didn't think of that as a punishment. Yeah. That would be the first thing I would think of. It's like, okay, well, you're going to go clean that fucking house. That's your punishment. Yeah. And... That never occurred to him because he's the guy who sends other people to do things. Like it, I, 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 I imagine that like sometime maybe he's not thinking about the house because it's Livia's house and he has a whole disassociative <laughs> thing with right. that. But at some point, a professional cleaner was going to go be sent there to clean out the house. Didn't even think of like oh, you know the 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 best solution was right in front of him and. and he didn't think of it, but in terms of yeah, yeah, in terms of meeting out punishment, as you say, Chris, he seems more ineffectual than Carmela. Yeah, Carmela's kind of cross-examining him when they come home. What did you do? I don't know. I yelled. It's a really funny line, actually. Yeah. But it <laughs> kind of shows, as you guys said, how they're in between this rock and a hard place. One other thing about Tony here, just noting this, I also had an older brother who was more of the troublemaker than me, and I think it was very painful for my parents, as I'm sure it is for a lot of parents, to get to this point. With, say, a teenage kid, whether or not a wild child, um, because this is a bit out of character for Meadow, where you unquestionably love your kid, but you're having trouble trusting them because Mm -hmm. they're dumb and they make stupid decisions and you're worried about them. But how much more complicated is that for Tony? Yeah. Whose life has gone through these convulsions of his mother's betrayal, Janice's intrusion into his life, which has totally which complicates this story Mm. i felt it was a really interesting place for him to go as is the very premise of the episode meadow has unquestionably crossed a kind of line here in your grandmother's house but tony doesn't he doesn't even want to talk to his mother so it all comes together in this weird way it makes it harder for tony which makes it more interesting for us we talked about kind of what i the bread of this story sandwich the beginning the end meadow's journey in it let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the middle sections with Janice and how she plugs into this whole thing. I loved a lot of these Janice scenes in this episode. I love that Tony finally exploded. I little thing. I found it very funny and endearing that Tony was reading the back of the honeycombs box. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was testing his honeycombs IQ. Yeah, <laughs> that's something I would do. I love honeycombs. Yeah, it's a great cereal. So, uh, but that scene between them, like I love Janice's initial scene where she's like going against some know-it-all. And then she actually sees how it directly affects her after picking up her fucking disability check. Yeah. Uh, and sees how it actually personally affects her and then goes back guns a-blazing, uh, criticizing their parenting. I love Carmela's answer to her. I know that she eventually retracts it and feels bad about it because that's who Carmela is. But, you know, keep your mouth shut. Mind your fucking business when it comes to me and my kids. It's a shame because Janice is right, but Carmela is also right. It's one of those fun soprano scenarios where it's like, yeah, you didn't punish her at all. You're total softies. But we love seeing Carmela put her in her place because she's yeah. been such a hypocrite. Right, yeah. Well, that's that's Janice's whole thing is is what a big, you know, hypocrite she is to quote Tony. Vishnu come lately, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, 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 <laughs> that's so great. That's, that's her whole deal. Uh, she has no right to tell Tony and Carmela what to do yeah. with Meadow. We see it as the viewer. We see that the punishment, the consequences here are insufficient. 
Yeah. Um, but certainly Janice has no light to stand on when it comes to like being, you know, a parent, having a good mother-daughter relationship, yeah. behaving in a way that is remotely acceptable, any of that. And quite literally so, for maybe the first time we're made to feel for Janice, she mentions that she has a son named Harpo who is no longer... <laughs> Changed his name to Hal. Chris. Hal had moved to, and, and went up and was taken back to Montreal. And, you know, that's that's sad. I feel for her. She undoubtedly must have fucked that up in some what a small little 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 window we get into her life there she has a child she's very emotional about it right quickly and And, uh and who presumably also changed his name and ran away right like she did and a partner named i think it was eugene yeah right we get it for two seconds yeah so there's a lot a little bit of history there and we definitely see that it affects janice that uh that will come back but Janice is just so lacking in any kind of maturity. Mm. You know, I, I think that's ultimately what it is. Did she you know, say the first episode back, my therapist says I'm regressing? <laughs> yeah, she well, she, she sure is. <laughs> that's, a, um, that's a really nice catch, Chris. I mean, that's key. That's going to yeah. be key, right? I, you know, it's very easy to make fun of Janice. We, we really went into it as soon as we met her in, in the first episode this season when we had our, our first show back. It's easy to make fun of her for her dabbling in Eastern philosophy or in yoga or her, you know, oh God, from, you know, ergonomic pillow and miso soup and all that stuff. <laughs> you know, it's it's easy to, to make fun of Janice for that stuff. But ultimately, none of that stuff would be, you know, the target of ridicule if she owned it in a way that felt genuine to yes. us, right? It yes. all feels like an act to us. Correct. It all feels fake. That's the problem with the character. That's why we don't trust her. Not that her. she's a hippy-dippy no, weirdo from Seattle. I would be fine with all of that if it was coming from a place of maturity, if she was authentically invested in making her life or the lives of those around her any better. But just like with anything else, it's just we see it as a scam. It's just another It's another make-believe. It's a pretend. A and Tony man. knows it. Yep. That's really well said. I couldn't do better than what you guys said on Janice. I think the only thing that I would add is that because you brought up both maturity and regression... Respect, respectively, um, our pull quote this episode has to do with regression, regressing into the girl thing, as yeah. Melfi says. Isn't it interesting, and I think pretty deliberate, that not only is Janice perhaps regressing and has this lack of maturity, but her behavior and whatever needling, annoying quality it has pushes Tony into a similar regression into his boyishness and petulance and anger. Yes. Um, Janice says after he knocks the bowl over, gives her the Vishnu come lately um, rant and storms out. She says, he hasn't changed one iota since we lived in Newark, not one iota. What's probably more precisely true is that she's bringing out the old teenage Tony <laughs> with her selfishness and her immaturity, just as just as what Tony's effect on Melfi in the restaurant seems to bring out what she sees as a girlish regression, and then after she leaves the restaurant... Tony boyishly regrets into talking about blowjobs to get his friends off his case. That's a really great pull, Paul. Really amazing. So yeah. I think that that's... It seems as though a lot of that is deliberate in what this episode is bringing up about maturity. And maybe that's the great payoff is that it's a 17-year-old girl who kind of shows us the way at the end. Yeah. There's also, you know, the great scene there is is Carmela, when she apologizes to Janice, goes to the upstairs bedroom as if Janice is her daughter, mm. not her sister-in-law. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah. You know, and just says, you know, and, and if you could turn the music down a little bit. You know, I mean, that's the button on that, that little scene. Janice, I think, enjoys being treated as a child in some way. Mm. It, it is. It, you know, Paul, really good observation here. I mean, you know, with, with uh, Dr. Melfi's quote here 
you you always regress in defense. You know, Janice feels vulnerable here, so it's easier for her to still be the teenage girl in the upstairs bedroom. Hmm. Very good. Let's use this regression talk to transition into the Melfi storyline in this episode. It's not as uh, pronounced or drawn out as some of the other ones, but let's talk about it. First we see of Melfi in this episode is, is it in the restaurant? Yes. The first we see of her in the restaurant. So the guys are all having a meal. This is after some of the drama with Richie April. We'll come to it. We're going to get to Richie. Hang in there. But we're having this, you know, nice dinner. A dinner I would love to be at with those guys. That has to be a fun Oh, night. yeah. Johnny Sack visiting from New York. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Johnny Sack was there. I don't even think he had a line, but just he, he had to be present there. I like that. And Melfi, with some friends, happens to be at this restaurant, walks through. Paulie, of course, with the... Hey, bright eyes, where are you going? You yeah. know, that very funny, very, very poly. And uh, yeah, so Melfi sees him, has a kind of a weird reaction. And as she's going up the stairs, says, Toodaloo. <laughs> and next we see her, she's dreading that word choice in therapy. I think I'm a hopeless romantic or something because I tend to put this on their relationship no matter what. In fact, listening to past episodes of ours, I bring this up every time. I feel like there is a love story that is just always brewing between them because this incidental meeting that it just happens totally by accident in this restaurant does feel like running into the old lover. And that, mm. in fact, is what everyone at the table takes it for. Yeah. There is not a moment of, who was that? They all know who it was. That was some old girlfriend. Because that's absolutely the energy that is projected between Melfi and Tony at all times. This is not a conspiracy mm. theory. This is... You know, this is confirmed. This seems like the old romance, or they don't even realize, perhaps ongoing romance that is there between them. Yes, it is actually more significant than that, and there's something more mature going on. It's more complicated than just an old romance, but it's not quite wrong either. Mm. It is the old lover that comes back unexpectedly, and, oh, what do you do about the small talk in that moment? Also, point of order... The three women, uh, so Melfi and her two friends have just finished a bottle of wine together. And I think the line is, I can't believe we finished a bottle of wine between the three of us. Paul, Chris, am I a fucking alcoholic, right? Uh, it's just, uh, drinking a bottle of wine to me is like, like, wow, I can't believe I drank a whole bottle. But between three people, that's nothing. Well, they have a glass each, a glass and a half. To, to me, maybe I now maybe I have a heavy pour. Uh, but uh, to me, a, a bottle of wine with three people, you each get like... Two glasses. Maybe. That's a st- yeah. bottle of wine for three people is standard. Yeah, yeah. Yes, right. I was wondering if, like, again, like maybe pointing to something with Melfi, but certainly her friends a bit more conservative than she, because I think the woman says, "Can you believe we drank a bottle of wine between the three of us?" Melfi says, "Thank God." Yeah, <laughs> needed to take the edge off. Um, it might be why she's a bit something loose in that scene, where in her looser than her usual formality. She's usually a pretty formal. And we're going to be looser than our usual formality on the Sopranos podcast because the church on my corner is playing a lovely song and we're going to keep going. Okay. There you go. (laughs) So with that beautiful church, I want to talk about the beautiful music that Lorraine Bracco and Gandolfini made in this scene. This scene is very short. Yeah. Another one of these short scenes. Not a whole lot of lines. But again, as Jordan mentioned, there's not even a question, it seems, of who these people were to each other, even though it was something quite different. But we see... In the choices that the characters make, Tony pretty cold, barely looking at her. Um, Melfi maybe coming off of that, perhaps trying too hard. Maybe that the 
the liquid courage of that the, <laughs> uh, the the amazing third of a bottle of of nice red wine. So I just wanted to actually do a because I in terms of the deconstruction couldn't do better than what you guys did. But Lorraine Bracco and James Gandolfini once again acting the shit out of a scene together. Yeah, it's great. And then of course the interrogation after is just pure comedy. Oh my uh, gosh, the lines here. Frank Granzulli has definitely <laughs> known some guys in the neighborhood who talked this way. That sweetie had world class blowjob lips. Uh, pipe fitter lips is another expression used by pussy there. Um, and then, how can we not talk about the fucking the best, The best line of the episode. <laughs> Still, you remember your first blowjob? Yeah, how long did it take for the guy to come? And then repeats the exact... <laughs> did, you, did you hear what I said? Did you hear what I said? <laughs> Thing to Tony... God, any I still laugh at that. Anytime I watch through The Sopranos with somebody for the first time, that kills them every time. It's so fucking funny. I when, wonder... Oh, I'm sorry, Paul. Go ahead. Sorry, when they were cross-examining Tony, it's mostly very funny about the blowjob thing, and I think he just wants to... Move on. Yeah, yeah he wants to get him off his case, so he says, all right, she was good. Yeah. I wonder if, like, is that a point that, like, well, yeah, she was because she fucking saved your life. Yeah. Not because she gave you a friggin' Hummer. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, I wonder if his boys hadn't been there, maybe if he had just been out with one person, how mm. that scene might have been different. Because I think there's actually a little, like, Danny Zuko, Sandy Dombrowski thing going on in that scene, <laughs> oh, too, man. where it's just like, oh, it's the old girlfriend, <laughs> better act tough for the guys. What, we're doing small talk now? Yeah, yeah, nice to see you, whatever. And she's actually, she almost kind of seems excited by the moment that, oh, I can't believe I ran into Tony here. Yeah. And it seems like all the, I mean... <laughs> This fucking season opens with her her threatening him with a knife at the diner, yeah. you know? And this is all melted away in the matter of, you know, weeks, months, however long it's been. This was a significant shift from her. I was surprised, as a viewer, how Melfi was acting. Caught mm. off caught off guard, her natural response to Tony was to be, like, more than, more than cordial. Right. But to be the great writing that The Sopranos is, they address that in yeah, the therapy absolutely. scene. Because right. she's just like, what the fuck? She doesn't know why she reacted that way, and she's working that out yes. with the therapist. Bogdanovich, the Bogdanovich therapist, yes. as this new character, another first appearance in this episode of, as Paul mentioned, Dr. Elliot Kupferberg. He's the, <laughs> uh, I think he was mentioned in season one. Uh, uh, Macasian tells Tony that uh, she sees a, uh, a shrink, this Elliot Kupferberg. So we've heard of this man, but this is El this is uh, Melfi Shrink. And this is a different therapist. This is not the therapist that does family therapy. So I guess mm -hmm. she sees multiple therapists, maybe. Yeah, I think they have like their family therapist, the, right. the you know Murder Incorporated guy from season one, and then uh, <laughs> they she sees this one for herself and. Every therapist, I think, has another therapist. That has to be the I think you have to. I think that's almost like, you know, not an unofficial requirement of the job in some ways. Uh, knowing a few friends in therapy, that, that does seem to be the case. They, they do seem to have their own therapists as well. Yeah, so, uh, and for good reason. Uh, look, look what she's going through here. I do think she's overthinking the toodle-fucking-ooh thing a little bit. The exact word choice, perhaps, but definitely not the demeanor. It makes mm. sense that she'd be confused... Why, after, especially after what ha the last thing she said to him, get out of my life, she was kind of a cute, like, oh, it was like a, hey, ha I'm happy to see you reaction. It was, she could have just walked, kept walking. So, interesting that she, yeah, as you said, Jordan, very, very good there. And then the dream. I love her. I love this dream so yeah. much. The imagery, the way it's shot, uh, it's surreal, but also plausible, because we've seen Tony crash the car reaching for the empty Prozac, the Wizard of Oz is playing, and then we kind of realize something's up uh, when she drives by and is staring at him, and it's like, oh, this is clearly 
not happening. What do we make of this dream? Uh, first, I'd like to talk about the music choice. Yeah. Um, the You're Out of the Woods, You're Out of the Dark, You're Out of the Night yep. song, I believe, from The Wizard of Oz, which I believe in the film takes place right after Dorothy and friends have woken up from the poppy field mm -hmm. that only Scarecrow and Tin Man are immune to. Uh, they wake up because it's snowing, I think. Glinda makes it snow. Mm. And then they arrive at the Emerald City. Uh, just, you know, interesting interesting song to include here. Um, Glinda as a savior figure. You know, Dorothy and friends are in trouble. It's it's one of the few times in the plot that they, they actually can't get out of the mess on their own. They need someone's help to, to propel them forward to the Emerald City. Mm. Tony needs Melfi's help to get him out of that situation. She doesn't have a role in that dream. Melfi's not there. She's a passive observer to Tony. She sees it happen. She she sees the accident happen. You know, the dream starts with, with us with Tony. You know, she's yeah. she's presumably the unseen passenger in that car, and then she sees him crash through the windshield with the Prozac in his hand and realizes, oh, I'm supposed to be the outside helper here. It was just it was just interesting. She's coming towards the revelation that, you know, Tony can't really have a healthy life without her, that she abandoned him. Do you think uh, Elliot makes the point in their therapy scene, you know, you have to ask yourself why you got into psychiatry in the first place. Is it to help people stop biting their nails? And, you know, so there's Smoking nothing wrong with that. Right, yeah. yeah, that kind of thing. Just as a matter of personal opinion, and again, no spoilers, because this relationship continues to develop as the series progresses. But what do we think of Melfi's decision to tell, to tell Tony off and not accept him? Just as a matter of, of opinion in the, in, this, in the first episode of season two when she tells him no. And he is on his own, and he is unbalanced, and he is in a volatile spot. The complication for me emotionally is that I wanted her to take him back, I think because of what the show sets up and engenders mm. in me, but I totally understood her decision that she doesn't want him in his life anymore, even as it's an emotional one, because I absolutely understood where she was coming from. She wasn't ready for this, even if she thought she was. Uh, there were a number of betrayals of her privacy in her own life, so I absolutely got where she was. But also, I think it's it's also very realistic, and it feels true to this character that she is going through this now in this way. Mm. That she's criticizing herself for regressing into this girl thing as she sees it, and is escaping what she sees, I think, still as her responsibility. And that points to the dream sequence when... And she wakes up, writes down everything, including The Wizard of Oz, title, and underlines Prozac three times. Mm. So that's where I am with that whole sequence. I also just think it's very nicely set up the dream. Um, as you guys mentioned, very nice deconstruction, Jordan, on the dream itself and The Wizard of Oz song choice. The setup for it is very simple. By the way, before that dream happens, Tony leaves the house, he kisses the kids goodbye, he says, I gotta go. Mm. And it shows him driving in the rain. That could just be him driving in the rain. Yeah. It's not it, until I, I, some really crazy shit happens that we're like, oh, wait, this is something. Again, I'm, I've probably watched through it so many times with new people. There have been many times when I've been watching along with people and they think for a hot second that that just happened. That Tony's actually collided with some truck head on and is like, oh, my God. And then they see Melfi and it kind of brings together. So, yeah, it's done in a way that it's like it does leave you a little like, oh, fuck. Yeah. I understood Melfi's decision to stop seeing Tony. I didn't necessarily agree with it. Not because I couldn't understand where she was in her life, the betrayals of her privacy. I think it's in her best interest to stop seeing Tony. But yeah, again, knowing what I know about the character, you can't divorce yourself from the show and mm -hmm. from what you know about Tony and where he's at in his life. So 
like Paul, I'm hoping for this reunion. Yeah. That is actually responsible for quite a lot of the tension in these early episodes of, of season two, which is just like, these two need to get back together. Yeah. You know, he's he's spiraling, um, and she feels that obligation, the, the pull of this duty that she has to him to resolve their, their issues and, and get back into therapy. It's so funny. One yeah. of the games we like to play on this show is thinking about, like, what if this other character were the main character instead of Tony? Right. And we feel this pull for Melfi and Tony to be together, not just as fans of good drama because their scenes are so good, and it would just be a joy to see at this point in the show, a part of you is aching for the two of them to just be in those chairs and have those great therapy scenes again. Yeah. But you're being deprived of that, so it's a very deliberate tension there. But at the same time, if this were Dr. Melfi's show and she were our protagonist... Her wanting to take Tony back in therapy would almost be like her tragic flaw. You'd be like, no, don't don't take that guy back. Are you kidding me? And she would feel that pull, that responsibility. And it would be like, a, a not quite to this scale, but it would be like a Ned Stark thing where she feels this kind of noble responsibility to do something that is ultimately going to be destructive. Hmm. But... It's there, and she has to, and she feels it. I know that the Bogdanovich therapist character, Dr. Kupferberg, is a little bit uh, buffoonish, uh, certainly with his water bottle and the way some of his <laughs> phraseology comes out. But um, did you say lamb? <laughs> <laughs> he does say something quite wise. You know, he says, "All right, yeah. So you you were practicing therapy in a motel for a while. You know, uh, Melfi has been dragging herself across the coals." over this patient that committed suicide because, in, at least in Melfi's mind, she was not available to this woman and she ended up taking her own life. But Kupferberg tells her, it's like it would have been the same thing if you were on vacation. You were available at the motel. You were available by phone. This is not something, you know, you're, you're carrying around this rock that you don't need to be carrying. And Melfi has done something that Tony often does. She's kind of displace the anger right it has ricocheted in some way right yeah she's taking the anger that really she should be more angry with herself and put that on on tony but then i think she realizes that like well this whole situation that i've invented is kind of a construct it's not really tony's fault that this woman took her own life that was something unfortunate that happened mm. you know it wasn't really a side effect of tony's actions directly not really mm. and bogdanovich you know kupferberg puts that in perspective and i think in a way that was really good and removing that roadblock for her is something that is allowing her to kind of come back to the situation and heal from it and say, like, okay, maybe that person was responsible for their own death in some way. Maybe it wasn't me and it wasn't Tony. And now that that roadblock is removed, this is going to allow for some easier passage in terms of thinking about getting back to therapy with Tony. Nice. Well, let's talk about the menace in the room. Let's talk about Richie April. Shifts where you start. Here. Good Lord. So we talked a, a little bit of just about his general... The way he's upended the status quo of the show in a monster way. The way he's kind of immediately at odds with Tony. Immediately dissatisfied. Immediately dysfunctional. Immediately dangerous. Let's just start at the scene at, at Beansy's and progress. Because this is a wild ride for one episode, man. A lot, a lot happens here. This this whole sequence... not This is not a criticism, but this sequence could have been like touched down on in three separate episodes if this were another show. But... This is like, Richie, we're, we're getting a good sense of who this guy is right off the bat. And uh, I love this character, not love as in, oh boy, I would love to hang out with Richie April. But love as in, I love the menace that he brings. Uh, a a much-needed presence at this point, as you said earlier, Jordan. Our main villains, quote-unquote, from season one have been diminished in, in, in big ways. So, Richie April's on the scene. What do we make of this? Let's talk about how this affects Tony and the world of the show. 
how it affects Tony is uh, probably of chief importance because I think like Janice, it we're dealing in part not just with a new character, but the dynamic of what this brings out in Tony. Mm. Richie April is fascinating to me for a lot of reasons. I think it's a very well-written character. Mm-hmm. As Chris, you pointed out, David Proval does something a little different with it. I think he works with stillness in an interesting way. He has this menacing quality. He is charming in a weird, superficial way that, unfortunately, I think a lot of psychopaths are. Mm-hmm. And this character is also one of the reasons he's super interesting to me. Again, something feeling more realistic... If you read books on writing, if you take classes on writing, narrative stuff, TV, film, they always tell you that your villains have got to be super resourceful, super smart. Your antagonists got to have these resources. They got to be really smart. They got to be the best. It's best if Voldemort has more powers than Harry Potter because that's a bigger mountain for our hero to climb. One of the things I love about Richie April is that he is specifically not that. <laughs> he's He's got resources. He's got some intelligence, he does not use it, he is not shrewd, he does not stop to think things through. The key is, is that even when he acts, perhaps especially when he acts in that way, the consequences, as we've used for the title of this episode, are dire. They're very serious. So that means that Tony still has this headache, and it it doesn't quite matter that he's not smart, that he's not like a precision shooter. He's got... These resources at his he's great disposal. with a coffee pot, though. <laughs> he's pretty, yeah, he's pretty good with a coffee pot. He's not, he's not bad with a fucking uh, big four wheel drive car either, by the way. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the uh, that's a good baseline for me of why I love this character and this story of his introduction in this episode. So the first scene we get from Richie is he's newly out of prison. We know that he's seen a few people that day. He makes reference to having seen Polly mm. uh, earlier in the day, who might have been the person that picked him up from jail. But he's being driven around by Adriana, who we will come to learn he is related to, which is significant. Shows up at Beansy's Pizza Place. That should be a low-stakes environment. There yeah. are people around. The sun is still out. Uh, the encounter begins in a friendly way, and it goes terribly wrong. He displays in that first scene so many important things about his character. One is that he is trying to reassert dominance. So he was, we know, now we know something really important about him from before the 10 years he spent in jail. He previously was in a position of power, right? And he was a dominant figure who was used to a certain degree of respect. And the other thing that we learn, I think, early is that this relationship with this character, Beansy, is important. Why does Richie... Richie could go see anybody. He's been away for a decade. Why this guy? Mm. Why this pizza place? What is it about this guy that bothers him in some way? Was this someone that he took a certain sadistic glee in abusing 10 years ago? Clearly this was somebody that, you know, he previously collected from. He says he had set him up in business and now Richie feels owed. That's going to be the modus operandi for this character. He feels owed. Yeah. He feels owed everything, all of his money back, his powers back, the things that he had previously, and he doesn't like that things are out of place. It's like he does not like what's become of the world, become of the family, or become of his status in it since he's been away. And much like Tony's visit in therapy with Dr. Melfi, uh, Richie's visit to prison has made him um, better. Mm. You know, he's gotten the worst lesson out of yoga, right? He's learned how to hang on to potential energy for a bad purpose, not to release it. Yeah, You know, he's just pulling it in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
and he's a fucking animal. I mean, that first scene with Beansy is brutal, and you feel that coming. There's like a there's a nauseousness that follows Richie Aprile around. Every scene he's in, since that first scene with Beansy establishes it, I'm waiting for him to really hurt somebody yeah. in a way that's really significant, either with his words or with his actions. Mm-hmm. 100%. He's like a cat that's calm, but you touch them, it's over. That's it. And, and he... God, I think I like to think about with this character, especially because now you have to take anything anybody says on the show with a grain of salt because everybody's lying all the time. The two things these characters all do is they lie and they glorify the past when they shouldn't. However, because we don't have anything else to go off of except a couple of episodes where he's sick and dying, I like to think about him and his brother Jackie back in the heyday. You know, I like to think about what they must have been like. By all accounts, this is why I said take it with a grain of salt, by all accounts, Jackie was a well-liked, warm, kind of guy you like to be around. And he's got this specter with him as his brother, this Richie, who's like, God, what a force they must be to deal with. It's like, you got to deal with the April brothers. Let's try to get Jackie. <laughs> you know, uh, you, you probably wouldn't want to fuck with Jackie because that Richie was right there with him. Uh, but I like, that's just a fun thing to think about. It must... To your point about him being so disgruntled and not liking the way things are, it must really stick in his craw that he just missed Jackie being boss and, and you know, came out, like, that happened a year before he got to get out of prison, that his brother, who was the boss of the family, died. And now he's here and he has to deal with Tony, who he clearly, to me, uh, doesn't respect, doesn't like how he runs his business. Right. And... Goes around to the people who could pose a huge threat. He he visits everybody who poses some kind of threat to Tony at this point in the episode. He visits Junior. He visits Livia. He reconnects with Janice. It's like the worst possible person to connect with all of these separate entities. These people who have malice to Tony and disgruntled issues with Tony. Unsettled problems with Tony. And he's just kind of like putting a, you know, getting a, almost in a very subtle way a little bug in all of their ears. Like, yeah. Is this the way it is? He asked Junior. If it, you know, if, it's just, he's, it's very good. He calls Tony kid yeah. at one point. He's like, we got a problem here, kid? I was watching this episode. I was like, kill him now. Kill him now. <laughs> or, yeah. or there's going to be fucking huge problems sure. going forward. Because what we're dealing with in part is, I think Tony still wanting to bring things back to a certain status quo. And newly boss, not wanting to rock things too much. He's usually trying to calm Richie down. I think it gives Richie, frankly, too much rope. Not, mm. that, not that I could have necessarily made a better decision, but the position that Tony is in means that Richie has kind of carte blanche to go around in this episode and start this process, whether deliberately or not, of really pointing us toward trouble. He pledges fealty to Junior in that scene at the doctor's office, which Tony, the other surrogate son in Junior's life, never did. Mm -hmm. um, again, really good writing in pretty short scenes that sets us up. We show how important Richie is to Junior when Richie comes into the doctor's office and I think Junior says literally, there's there's my boy. Yep. You know, and then he tells Junior at the end of the episode, whatever, whoever, you just say the word. I'm yours, Junior. I mean... Yeah. Uh, you know, Richie, I'm not, is this the second scene we see him in where he goes to in front of Satriales? So Satri yeah, I wanted to talk about that scene because I love this scene with him and Tony in front of Satriales with so, Christopher. Yeah, he basically has this appointment. I, I don't know how to say it better than that. He has an appointment with Tony that, to Richie's credit, it does seem like he's bringing up something that should be brought up. Mm. He's bringing up business 
Yeah. You know, what else would he be talking to Tony about? He wants his shy business back. He wants to be set up in the way he used to be. Mm. He's probably been thinking about this for 10 years. Like, when I get out, I'm going to speak to probably formerly my brother and then Junior and then Tony, right, yeah. about just how do I get myself back to where I was? That's all anybody in prison wants, really, yeah. is to recover their livelihood. Uh, unfortunately for him, it's a criminal livelihood. Yeah. Uh, you know, and Tony can't talk business there because that location's being watched, but no one has explained this to Richie. Yeah. I actually don't think Tony handles the situation very well. He literally gets up and walks away from him, which, by the way, is insulting, but also Richie takes things like that way too far. Yeah. The better part of that scene, however, is Christopher is late. Yes. For that meeting. And Richie, again, has another, I think, likable moment in the scene mm -hmm. where he basically tells him, like, listen, my niece Adriana, you lay a hand on her again without giving her your last name. Uh, you won't see my face. In other words, if I hear you hit her again. This is the consequences from the first episode of this season where for the first time ever we saw Christopher hit Adriana. Yeah. Now, she did hit back, but we were all made very uncomfortable by that moment. We had thought, oh, I didn't realize they had this kind of relationship. Maybe we had assumed, but we didn't think it was that kind of physical thing where occasionally he would hit her. I know I didn't like it. Mm. Uh, and now we are three episodes later, and Richie says, I saw that thing you did, or I heard about it. Uh, sorry, two episodes later. And that matters to me as a viewer. You mm. know, that part I kind of liked because there are, and I hate to admit it, there are aspects of the old school I do like. Mm. I do like that kind of a thing, but I don't like where Richie takes it. Of course. Right? You know? That yeah. was very much my, that's a great reading, and that was how I felt about that. That's in the first portion of the scene. That scene where Richie is meeting with Tony at Satriales and Chris walks up, and Richie sets down this old school correction comes right after the scene at the house where Meadow manipulates her parents into a non-punishment punishment. Right. So we're seeing this, again, the modern family dynamic juxtaposed with the old school, and we see, as I think Jordan mentioned in season one, how we like it sometimes how these gangsters dish it out. But then at the end of that very same scene, even the old school isn't respected. Tony just gets up and walks away from Richie. Yeah. Um, it's a great little scene to show where Richie is at, and how, as you said, Jordan, he's going to take this absolutely the wrong way. Yeah. yeah. And look at all these non-old-school or non-traditional locations that Richie is forced to deal with, right? I have to meet the boss in a mall electronics store? Yeah. I have well, to beat the no boss, the no. boss ex-emeritus in a doctor's office? Yeah. Yeah. No no coincidence, by the way, that uh, that meeting with Tony that he does eventually get is in a, like, a modern electronics store, of yeah. course. Very good. Very Just, good. you know, places that are very distasteful. Yep. Some I think kid to fucking spilled yeah. fried rice all over him. That never would have happened in the old days. No. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so then they have that scene, and uh, I like how Tony is trying to, like, appease him. Though It is a different... It's partially this innate disrespect Richie has for Tony, but it's also a distaste for the way... The reality of the mob at this point, and... Tony talks about this his very first meeting with Dr. Melfi in episode one, season one, about the government's use of legal strategies to squeeze my business and the feds cracking down on the mob in the 90s had a big impact. And that's when Richie was in jail. And he's out and you can't have a meeting with the, no, no sit downs with the skipper directly. Or, you know, no talking business with the skipper directly. Not now and never here, Silvio tells him. And then they have to meet in these, yeah, clandestine locations, these oddball places. And Tony's... You get the sense that Tony's really trying here. Uh, you know, I'm just, Jesus Christ, I'm trying to ease your transition. You know, I, I just want you to slow down. And Richie's just not having it. What's mine is not yours to give me. Great line, great delivery by David Proval. That's the center of his whole character. Yeah. 
Yeah. What's mine is not yours to give me. That's that's might as well be tattooed on Richie April's forehead. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And then, if because if it couldn't get worse, Richie and Janice, we get the yeah. sense that there's some history here. He's they're, they're, he's doing yoga. Fuck. <laughs> so we learned they had a romance some time ago. I I even am almost. In my head, I picture it as almost like teenagers or early 20s, like, you know, a while back. Well, f- for her, it would probably be teenage early 20s. He's much older than she is. Yeah, right? yeah So they true. had a fling, I guess a fling, 20 years ago. Yeah. Right? Pimps beep. I love that line. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> and this is, listen, these, this is smart writing. Which two characters would hurt Tony the most if they got together? In season one, <laughs> Livia and Junior. In season two, Janice and Richie. Yeah. So we see this coming as viewers and we're like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, some very oh no moments, very funny moments. These are characters that are the two of them are full of shit. I think in similar ways. Yeah. Um, their new age philosophy is, as Jordan pointed out, essentially another scam. A it's scam a scam to suit their nefarious ends. Yeah. Oh, right, yes. a language with 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 which not to communicate, and only to justify their own lives. Yep. Mm. Not a criticism. This is the first time this season that I was able to see formula writing. Uh, because, uh, Paul mentioned this, uh, in one of our earlier episodes, you know, uh, The Sopranos has been really quite good at dodging typical plotting, right? Like, big explosion in your season finale and you want something huge in the opening, right? We have a very soft opening in season two. We've kind of built to this Mm. arrival of Richie. Richie should have been in the first episode in a typical drama, Mm. right? Uh, but we have atypical narration here, a uh, narrative rather. The fact that Janice and Richie get together is significant in terms of recognizing Soprano's formula. And again, it's a good thing, but it's just, you can now recognize it in the writing where it's just like, all right, season one, Livia is the home threat and Junior is the threat abroad. And then there's crossover, right? Uh, now we have that as well coming here. Janice is the home threat and and Richie again is going to be the, 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 the mob family threat. And then how do you cross them over? Well, this time it's going to be a romantic thing instead of a... Uh, family obligation way and i think that's that's good that's Mm. smart but it also is going to power a lot of our conversations gonna be like all right well what's richie at the threat level for the mob life what is he the threat level for the home life Mm. you know we get to go back and forth absolutely so richie and janice they're linked back up they do yoga they have a little lunch at livia's by the way this livia scene so fucking funny so good so many funny lines i love the moment um (laughs) where uh she's asking him how jackie died and he's like, he had cancer. And then the woman in the next bed, me too. She's like, shut that curtain, will you? <laughs> Classic Livia. Yeah. Fucking with the re- with the bed and the remote and TV. That and scene, of course, has another, I wish the Lord would take me now, yeah. which was good to hear. Yeah, this was vintage Livia. Vintage Livia. Yeah, I like when I like that little moment where Richie says, you know, someday someone's gonna wash your mouth out with soap on. And she's like, oh yeah, who you? <laughs> <laughs> really great shit. And then they go off and have their lunch, but yeah, the 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 headline reads Richie and Janice. The old old flames are being fanned, and this is almost certainly going to come back in a big way very soon. I wonder, am I being stupid? Is any of this genuine? Or is, this, or is this all just a plot by Richie? You know, I he keep in mind, I, I think we have reason to believe even just from this first episode, Richie is a sociopath. So really, he can have any feelings he would like to feel. He will just force himself to display. So I I feel like this might be a maneuver. I mean, I know we know Surely, he's trying to get laid. Yeah. Uh, maybe Janice was an easy lay back in the day. No <laughs> offense. Uh, you know, maybe he's thinking that. But also, 
that's not the lay to get an easy layoff of if she's the boss's sister. I'm sorry. You can get somebody else. I think it's a strategic move. Hmm. You think it's a strategic move purely? I, I, I don't know. I feel like there's something about their personalities that, that connects in an, in an interesting way. But it, it, it is probably, at least in part, strategic. Yeah, I agree with you there. It's a very good question because I also considered it, watching this episode, all these different sort of points, like these pegs that he's pinging throughout. Um, could that it has this? Could it have this strategic quality? It seems to, but there's also a certain sentimental quality. Um, I think he really did like Junior back in the day, and I think Junior really did like him. But I, by you know, I assume you and your brother were always good boys. Means you guys did great bad things for me, <laughs> you know that sort of thing. So I think it might be a bit of both. But I do think that there's something between he and Janice. What's interesting, though, of course, is that. So much of it is bullshit between the both of them. Yeah. Janice is skeptical in that scene at the hospital where they go down to the cafeteria, have some coffee. She says, oh, what, you've grown? He has this funny line, did you ever, do you th- did you ever think you'd see Richie April doing downward-facing dog? But Janice hasn't changed either. So what yeah. are these people doing and what are they attracted to? I think is a question that is going to continue to be answered as we go on. Correct. I think this is something that uh, will be elicited as the season progresses. Maybe I'm giving Richie too much credit. You know, I don't know. I'm used to reading like John le Carre novels, which is like the, the perfect <laughs> thing to do to your opponent, get involved with their woman, because then they can't see what you're really up to. Yeah. I, no, I think you're absolutely right, Jordan. I, I, I don't doubt that he is seeing the people he's seeing for a reason. Yeah. And targeting the people he's targeting for a reason. But, you know, I also... Don't think that's all there is, but uh, it's hard to comment without citing future events because this is just getting started. So yeah, we'll come back to this, but let's remember that this will we'll be forced to remember it as later episodes are are told. Another next beat in this story that I want to talk about is the little reunion we have at the Bing for Richie. Great, Funny, great interesting comedian bit. Gotta love that comedian on stage. Oh, <laughs> the fucking return of the bad comedian. <laughs> Maximum security penalty box. Maximum security. Help me. <laughs> and I love Tony Leans. <laughs> yeah, Tony leans into Sylvia. All right, that's enough of this fucking guy. <laughs> Once he says Muslim, like even the gangsters are like, oh god. <laughs> Large Muslim population. This is getting out of hand, yeah. And the fucking Ed Sullivan impression, like, God, what year is this? <laughs> Very funny. I love that they brought him back. He was in, of course, the uh I think he was in either uh, not Boca, but one of the season uh, one episodes, maybe uh, Down Tennessee Back or something. Tennessee Moltisanti, yeah, I think. Tennessee Moltisanti, one of those mid-season one episodes, and I love that they brought him back for this. I think just someone David Chase likes. I think just, you know, get that comedian guy back in. Yeah, it could yeah, be a Renzoli thing. Get him another day of work. It's great. Uh, so, yeah, I have to do my research on that guy. I want to know if he's a real comedian or if that's a character they wrote. Get him on this show. How, how hard would that be? Yeah, I guess that how it probably wouldn't be that hard to book him if he's really like that. Would be that. fun. But then again, yeah, that would be great. That's funny. I'm going to look into that. Research topic. Research topic. Um, um, and I, then we get this Yeah, please. Yeah, the scene up they're kind of in the upper VIP area and Polly has to fucking insult this random <laughs> giant guy from I got no grandkids reason. now. <laughs> please, no pictures. <laughs> Exploited medical curiosities whatever you know. <laughs> um and I just, it's so, it was just so unnecessary of Polly to do that. I think it's just a very funny moment. Uh, and, um, of course, Richie gets taken into a back room. And 
Chris mentions he has a real fucking attitude problem in the company that even but even in the close company of like the the immediate Tony Soprano crew right there even Pussy says hey careful you know Richie's still a made guy he's old school you know talk that way about another made guy I know Frank Renzulli's big about the mob rules and the way he writes it like he has he grew up around wise guys he knows the rules that they live by and you know so I love that they had Pussy kind of say hey careful you know just really quick in between lines and Tony as if he's trying to convince himself more than anybody says Richie's gonna be all right and then we go into this back room where Richie is being pleasured by some of the Bada Bing girls in the dark. They make a point that he likes the dark. And his I think the exact quote is, uh, you like the dark? And he says something like that, yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a trope, uh, an old villain trope, that like villains are often sexually weird in some way. They mm. either have some weird fetish or like they're sexually frustrated somehow. And it applies to Richie, not just in his love for darkness, but also just, have you ever seen somebody so depressed or disappointed after a blowjob is over mm. right it's like it gave this guy no pleasure and no relief to come mm. yeah he's a weird duck he's a weird still egg. right still in that control phase whose joint did you just copy still has to pay yeah to yeah i hadn't thought of it that way that's that's interesting another possible possible thought you know this is grasping at straws here but i think of it possibly as a prison thing too because I imagine in 10 years, you never know what happens in prison. You might have had to close your eyes or find spots in the dark to relieve yourself. And maybe that's something that kind of... Oh, could be. I, I don't know. I mean, we're literally just grasping at, 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 at something for that. But I th it's an interesting look at him. I think you're being too nice. Yeah. I think Richie's just sexually a weirdo. And I think... I Listen, I, we have a no-spoiler policy, but yeah. we'll, we'll see more of that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. That, and that's also not just a... I don't want to say trope, because to me, trope has a kind of a negative connotation. It does, but we can call it out when it happens. Sure. Yeah, no. I, well, The Sopranos has this M.O. going forward, too, where the villains of the show have kind of weird sex things. That's something yes, that is... Yes, we're all thinking of the exact same villain in this moment. <laughs> so We can't go there yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, we, we will certainly go there. Um, we talked about the sexuality, but I also want to, you made the point, it's a really good pickup that I noticed too. It's a very quiet brief when Big Pussy says to Chris, careful, Richie's a made guy. As Beansy points out, again, great writing, he points out in the very first scene that Richie is in, you're a made guy, Richie, so I know I lose either way. What that means, as well as when Richie says later on, you taking the side of a civilian over me, which mm. is not allowed. Yes. And Christopher is... Not a made guy yeah. at this point. Careful. Which means that Richie has to be protected, even at the point where he has run this guy the fuck over with the truck. And yeah. that's a key factor. Again, we're dealing with an episode in which Melfi is saying, I can't escape this responsibility of taking care of this patient. Even if your teenage daughter annoys the shit out of you, even and if you're, if you're worried about her behavior, it's family. You have to protect her. Janice is super annoying, but to... To Carmela, she's family, we can't kick her out. And the rules of the mob family are that this guy has to be protected. Doesn't matter if he is a piece of shit. And that's the rock and a hard place that Tony is in in this episode yes. with this fucking impossible human being. You know, yes. now that you bring it up, I realize they actually triple down on that because when uh, Richie goes to see Tony at the electronic store in the mall, 
Uh, he just relays some incidental story about how when Tony was younger and he was doing some fucking job, Richie protected him in some way from a guy named Feach who was made before the electric light. Great line, I've never way. heard being made brought up so much in a Sopranos episode before and what that really means, this bulletproof quality it gives you. I've heard Frank Granzulli talk at, at various points, other podcasts, things online, whatever, and the rules of the mob are very serious and he grew up around these guys and it makes sense that he brings that in and there are he leaves the show after season three and there have been moments i've heard him criticize after season three various points where like you that character would never talk to a made guy like that you just don't talk to made guys like that and so i think that's a big frank Renzulli thing it's also a big thing in the mob uh if there's a guy michael franzese he's a former mob guy he owns he has his own youtube channel um made millions of dollars in the mob and he talks a lot about that like you do not fuck you that that's very real that you're a made guy you cannot talk shit to a made guy you can't fuck with a made guy you can't hit a made guy and it's important and i think it's great that it comes up so much in this episode about richie who's this old school guy and we, you know, it gives the viewer who might not be as acquainted with mob culture a sense of what it means to be a made guy in the sure. mob. You can't fuck with that person. Yeah, well, that's, that's an effort from the writers trying to afford this character a certain power that maybe not everyone is aware of what that means. So yes. For me, who's not as acquainted with like mob And you can run over that, and you know? cripple a guy and still not be punished for it because that guy's a civilian. He's not in the family. Yeah, so this scene is tough to watch. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah. He chases him down. He, he's pissed off. He slams the top of the car. Why weren't you at the party? Yeah, this is this is where the blowjob has brought him. Okay, you normally listen. I know that after I receive a blowjob, I mostly just want to go to sleep. Okay. Yeah. This guy wants to kill. Yeah. It, he, he even if he <laughs> were mad good. about it, even if he were mad at Beansy for not being there before the blowjob, he, uh, like he might have said, uh, maybe tomorrow I'll go see him. No, he went that fucking night. It stuck in his craw that Beansy wasn't there, and Beansy, of course, mouths off. Uh, let's talk about this. He, you know, I, I really feel for Beansy First here. of all, if I'm Beansy, this guy just broke my cheek with a coffee pot, embarrassed <laughs> me in front of everyone that works for me, probably made me shit my fucking pants. No, I'm not going to his, uh, welcome back <laughs> party. Okay, I'm not going to the homecoming. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, Beansy asserts this. I, I think, yeah, Richie just has it out for this guy. Yeah. I think this was inevitable. Yeah. You know, this was going to happen. I wonder, did Richie mean to kill him? Does he not care? Typically, when you hit somebody with a car, then you run over him again, you're thinking you probably killed this person. Mm. Yeah. And God... And, you know what? Actually, it would have been better. Oh, sure. If Beansy would have just been killed. Ultimately, yeah. yeah. Uh, for the, for the suffering that he and his family then have to endure. Uh, the, um, the coldness, especially after we get that scene in the hospital where his mother's devastated, his wife is furious and broken, he is in horrendous condition in the hospital. Yeah, what a good actor, really, by the way. The uh, uh, actor that plays Beansy is great. Yes, he kills this role. Yeah. Uh, and he's he's good. He's been in Goodfellas and a couple other gangster movies. But the coldness with which Richie delivers that line, almost humor. I thought I told you to back the fuck off Beansy. I did. Then I put it in drive. <laughs> oh, woof. Rough. It's really rough to watch. And, and then, uh, you know, very interesting Sopranos-esque transition out of that scene into... Meadow and Hunter listening to No Scrubs making a fucking mess in the kitchen. Yes, being uh, scrubs themselves, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and then, uh, so yeah, so he's crippled Beansy, and then I love this scene with Beansy and Tony in the hospital. Uh, again, they can't resist the humor. He helps him blow his nose, says, I might not even be able to wipe my own ass. Well, your nose is as far as I'm willing to go. Great line. 
you're, you're not going to love this comparison because it points out something kind of unflattering about Tony, but um, Beansy returns to his car thinking it is safe. Yeah, maybe he has dodged Richie and, and he's about to get in and, and maybe get away here. Oh, yeah, because I didn't mention he chased him with a fucking gun. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after being chased with the gun, he thinks, oh, I'm going to get away. And then, you know, Richie runs him down with the car. This particular attack reminds me of Tony waiting for Febby Petrullio in, in college. Oh, Just the yeah. way that he's waiting out in the dark somewhere we can't see, but the person is aware that the threat is out there, yeah. that it's, it's coming for them. And it's just, it, it paralleled Richie for me with Tony, of all characters. I know they've been placed opposite, but there's actually, I think there's a lot to these men that's, that's parallel, you know? Mm. Again, we've titled this episode The Consequences. Richie believes in the same kind of justice. I mean, we were at least informed what Febby Petrullio had done wrong. He turned state's evidence, he's in the witness protection program, and thus he deserves to die. Beansy has clearly not done anything like that, but in Richie's book, uh, this guy's gotta go. You know, and he waits in the same manner. You know, it's it's this very predatory, wait till they come back to when they think it's safe, and that's when I'm going to get them. And that's what Richie's going to do this whole season. Mm-hmm. Perhaps, perhaps buttressing that point that you just made about Richie, they're similar in some ways. I think it, it might account for why we're getting the sense in this episode that the difficulty here is kind of like an, an irresistible force meeting an immovable object. But this final scene... The confrontation between them, I guess, at the mall again, where Rich Richie eerily, after flirting with Janice, is looking at lingerie, um, <laughs> oh, and the God. two of them are going at it. They like they can't even agree on like who gets the last word. All right, Tony. Yeah. All right, Tony is in his face. I'm the motherfucking fucking one who calls the shots because yeah. that's the whole key. Who like I wrote down. That's a great ass chewing, by the way. Tony delivers a world class ass chewing. To Richie here. Absolutely. I love that. I love the way he speaks to him. It's, again, I've never been a mob boss. I have no desire to be a mob boss, but if I were in Tony's position, that's like exactly what I would say to this guy. You know, you want to talk all this old school bullshit. Here's one you might remember. Great. Just great stuff. That's a yeah, fucking Yeah, what's scene. mine is not yours to give me is exactly not true, Yeah. by the way. The, the, how else does this hierarchy work? Yeah, it's paramilitary. He's yeah. the fucking boss. He's the capo. He's the commander. Yeah, very good. Guys, I think that we've hit all the major story beats. Is there any other final thoughts on Toodle Fucking Ooh before we call this a wrap? Yeah, actually, I want to just bring it back to Meadows' friend Hunter, who I constantly forget her name, and now I will never forget it again after this episode. <laughs> I don't know why this one's the one that stuck for me, but um, just the uh, Hunter's address here that, you know, perhaps Meadows should consider bulimia as a way to manipulate her parents, Fuck. I thought was interesting and cruel and just mean and, and evil and i thought you know wow there's just a lot to be said about how even young people can manipulate you know older people there i don't know if there was something very mean about that and hunter's eating disorder problems are very serious she's been in the hospital yeah um but just that she offers it up with such lightness and such casualness like oh you know try try basically just try being bulimic right they'll they'll back right off of you you yeah. know it's just you know, it's just, uh, I didn't like that being used as an excuse. I didn't like Meadow insulting her parents' intelligence by saying I, I threw the party because I was under stress because I have to study for college and putting it in such a general way. Yeah. You know, it just, uh, it, it was it was interesting to me. Good stuff. Paul? That, that's a very good point. I guess the only thing I could add to it, because we've covered so much about, I think, responsibility as a theme, immaturity, consequence, of course, regression, 
um, family dynamics and responsibility to other family members and people in a family, be it biological or the mob family. But another thing about this show that I just want to throw out here really quick, as Jordan just mentioned, this kind of cruel idea that Hunter has about threatening to purge with your parents to, to again, eschew responsibility as one is growing up, is another, it's a show that it does not spoon-feed us, it doesn't insult our intelligence, kids can do bad things, manipulative things, and even Beansy, who by the end of this episode will elicit remarkable sympathy, in the first segment of that first scene is a royal fucking prick mm. to his underling at the pizza joint. Yeah. But it just shows you, nobody gets away clean in this show, ever. Yeah. And that's a key to the writing and its uniqueness as a show. Very well said, guys. And with that, that's a wrap on episode three of season two, Toodle Fucking Ooh. This has been great. I am very much looking forward to our next one, Commendatory. We're going to get break it down, but yeah, we're here. Richie April is here, and it, season two is really, this is like, bang! This is Emerald Lagazzi, who was in episode two, throwing in the spices. Uh, this, is, this has all been kicked up a huge notch, and season two really, in my opinion, does not let up from this moment forth. It's going to be awesome. Can't wait. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. Veal Parmesan sandwich. Fuck you. And I'm Jordan Hume. And we'll be back for Commendatory. Thank you all so much. Thank you for listening to The Sopranos Podcast. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Like us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the Sopranos Podcast, or Sopranos Podcast just on Twitter. And please give us a five-star review on uh, iTunes. It's very helpful. If you don't want to give us a five-star review, rather than give us a lower-star review, why not just send us an email at thesopranospodcast at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to see out of the show. Thank you so much, and have a good Sunday.